Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 38 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, November the 2nd. First, I talk to Sky and Space Boss, Maya Myerlin. The company is developing nanosatellites, smaller satellites. We're talking the size of a shoebox that can sit at much lower orbits. You can literally throw them off the International Space Station. Nanosatellites are one of the three trends currently taking the space industry by storm, the other two being reusable rockets that Elon Musk has pioneered and civilian space travel that Richard Branson champions. The idea behind nanosatellites is they're a cheap way of setting up a network of satellites across the world. In theory, we could have a network that provides global mobile phone coverage for a fraction of the price. Sky and Space just won NATO Satellite Company of the Year from Frost and Sullivan, with three pearls already in orbit, doing groundbreaking testing for future launches. And then I talked to economist Saul Eslake, looking at the future of negative gearing, which is now shaping up as an election issue. But first, let's talk to Sky and Space boss Maya Moerlin. Well, OK, now let's talk about uh, your, your company, uh, Sky and Space, and NATO Satellites. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, how, sure. How, I think you do that always. Tell us about nanosatellites. What are they? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Well, nanosatellites are um, small satellites, smaller than 10 kilograms. So they're not nano in the sense that we know nanotechnology to be, you know, extremely small nanometers. But they're very, very small when when you compare them to standard satellites. So if you look at a standard communication satellite, that would be uh, hundreds or even thousands of kilograms. If you look at a smaller uh, weather satellite or, or, you know, Earth observation satellite, it, again, will be hundreds of kilograms. But a few years back, people started to try and send out to space smaller and smaller satellites because technology just advanced. So you were able to put smaller computers and smaller power supply systems and smaller cameras and everything became smaller. And, and they were able to uh, send to space satellites which are very, very small, as I've said, less than 10 kilograms, but still use them as fully capable and operational space vehicles. So uh, because if you try to put something in space, there is a major cost, of course, of developing your satellite, but there is also a huge cost of putting stuff in space because you need to get a rocket and you need to put your satellite on board that rocket, and the cost is tens of thousands of dollars for each kilogram you try to send to space. So the smaller your satellite is, the less is the cost of putting it in space. And that's the major advantage of nanosatellites. You can do the same things from space, but at an extremely low cost. And what advantage would that have? I'd imagine it would be fantastic for telecommunications companies, for example. Oh, yes, of course. We, we are uh, the first and only so far nanosatellite uh, operator that uses nanosatellites for telecommunications. But oh, you're, you're perfectly right. Um, uh, assume that you want to provide telecommunication services and the satellite cost and the launch cost of the satellite is at the order of hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars then that would mean in order to get, you know, your commercial business after all, you're not doing it for charity uh, and you have to get your money back. So in order to get your return on investment at the first place and in order to get revenues that will make you profitable, you need to charge a lot of money in order to get those billions of dollars back into your account. However, if you're using nanosatellites, which is what we're doing, and you're, uh, CapEx, your capital required in order to put those satellites in space is much lower. That means that you can offer the same services for uh, a less less price for the customer. That means making the service not only more appealing, but also bringing on board new customers, which so far uh, the service was just too expensive for them. That you're uh, expanding the market, you're creating more and more opportunities, And at the end of the day, your profit margin is much higher than the existing players in the field. And that's where we come in exactly. So who would be your major clients? 
Um, the major clients are, of course, the telecommunication operators. We, we do not plan to sell our services, which are the ability to do uh, a phone call, to send an instant message, to do a Skype call like we're doing uh, right now, uh, to, uh, to send an image or a voice recording or something similar to that. Uh, we do not plan to send them, sell them directly to the end users globally. What we are doing is selling our service to the telecommunication operators, to the mobile network companies, and they go and resell it to their customers. So it's a B2B business, but it's a B2B business that has a potential of serving um, over 2 billion people uh, across the equatorial region, most of them in areas where they have no other choice because there's no real terrestrial infrastructure either working or uh, being planned to be deployed. So are we talking places like, say, Africa, for example? Yeah, we're talking places, uh, for example, like Latin America, like Africa, like Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, the, uh, the areas of the world where, the, as I've said, there is no good communication. If you're traveling across this region, so you're very familiar with the fact that when you're staying in a hotel, in a five-star hotel in the middle of the city, you have a very good reception and uh, even very good Wi-Fi. But when you step out of the city into the rural area, there's a very bad reception or no reception at all. And uh, we get really frustrated, you know, where we're, when we're disconnected from the grid, when we cannot uh, uh, access what we want. But for the people living in those, these areas, this is the reality. So there's a huge potential of what we're doing. So the growth market are in these areas where there's no real infrastructure for telecommunications. Exactly, exactly. That's where the growth area, and because of the uh, size of the territories and the uh, size of the required investment to deploy a terrestrial infrastructure, there's no real substitute uh, to, uh, uh, to space technology and to satellite communication. And up until now, satellite communication, as I've described before, nanosatellite, required a lot of expenses. That means a high cost for the users, whereas now where we come in, we completely disrupt uh, uh, the game. Tell us about the technology that goes into your nanosatellite. I mean, is it, is it proprietary satellite? Is it proprietary technology? Oh, yes, of course. The, the, the hardware itself... Uh, is something that you would be able to to, uh, uh, to purchase and maybe use on other satellites. But the hardware is a very small part of the equation. The, uh, the most important part is the software that we are using on board that satellite. That, satellite. that software enables us to operate our satellites in a very efficient way and to allocate the resources on our satellites in a dynamic way so that we'd be able to serve all of those people and all of those businesses and all of those companies and smart meters and uh, Internet of Things uh, subscribers and all of these in a very efficient way. We are deploying 200 satellites. And in order to operate 200 satellites that create a new network in space, you need to be extremely uh, efficient. And we had to invent uh, quite a few uh, things and be very innovative in our software development so that we would be able to use that. So the key, the key to what we're doing is the very advanced software that we're using on our satellites. But other than that, 
we have things like uh, software-defined radios on board our satellites. That means that the satellites can go uh, from one frequency to another uh, and to avoid any interference or any problem with the license of the frequencies, etc., or even create, when required, an ad hoc dedicated network. So, for example, take the uh, disaster that struck just recently um, the Indonesian area, and it destroyed quite a lot of the uh, ground communication infrastructure. So you can immediately, at the push of a button, create a local network dedicated to that region and help with the efforts of uh, the disaster management and, and saving, uh, saving lives. Right. And, and the software, would that vary from satellite to satellite, or is it, is it all the same for all, all 200? Well, it's all the same for all 200. However, it is an evolving I would say, software, because we have the capability to constantly upgrade it. So what we will do is, as, as new features are required, uh, they will be developed, tested, and uploaded to our satellites. We will also replace our satellites. So uh, every, uh, every year, we plan to replace 25% of the satellites. Remember, I talked about the low cost of the satellite, if we compare them to standard Satellites. This low cost enables us on a yearly basis to stay ahead of the game, to be at the forefront of technology and to use state-of-the-art capabilities so that our system is always updated and can always deliver better capabilities, better services, uh, uh, new applications, etc. And this is something that was never done in the space industry. Up until now, you're launching a satellite, you're keeping it in space for 15 years, sometimes even more. So you're using a technology that is, on average, 10 to 15 years old uh, because the satellite cost is so expensive. But with nanosatellites, with what we're doing, it's, it's almost like a smartphone. You know, we are replacing our smartphone every couple of years, not because it's not working or because it's uh, broken or anything, just because we want a, a new model with a bigger screen or a faster CPU or, or uh, more pixels for the camera or something similar to that. So uh, your nano satellites are like smart, the smartphones of satellite technology. Do you don't <laughs> and, and you don't have uh, any competitors in this area? <laughs> I, I, I would say that we are like uh, uh, the, the PCs versus the personal computers versus the old bulky big computers that people used to have but yes it's it's a it's a nice analogy um, as as i've said we are the only we're the first and only company to deliver satellite communication services with nano satellites there are companies who plan to do similar things to what we're doing or parts of what we're doing by the way there are two interesting startups in australia one is called fleet and the other miyota but they plan to deploy uh, uh, satellites in order to provide Internet of Things services, where Internet of Things is a very small part uh, of what we're doing, uh, and uh, still we're two to three years ahead ahead of the game. Uh, there are companies who operate nanosatellites for other purposes, like Earth imagery uh, or, or signal monitoring or things like that, but this is out of the scope of, uh, of uh, our market. We have no camera on board our satellites, and we do not plan to provide uh, photo services, so to speak, from space. 
Well, Maya, that sounds absolutely fascinating, and we're going to watch it with great interest. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for this, and uh, we, we're proud to be part of the Australian developing space industry, uh, and, and we believe that uh, following the last steps that, the, that are going on in Australia, setting up a space agency and, and uh, uh, looking at interesting opportunities in space, Australia can take its place in, in, uh, in the global economy as far as the space industry and space community is concerned. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Maya. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Uh, so, it's like the debate about negative gearing has kicked into gear again. Uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is saying Labor's policy will reduce the number of houses being built. And he says that uh, it will reduce the home values. And uh, obviously, he sees it as a key election issue, and it's a key point of difference. What's your view about this, and why has it kicked into gear again? Well, it is a key point of difference between the coalition government and the Labor opposition, as it was at the 2016 election. Although, interestingly, contrast, in contrast to the fears that some in the Labor Party had and the hopes that the coalition would have had, the policy that Labor took to the last election doesn't appear to have cost them any votes. And the scare campaigns, which the Turnbull government and the property industry ran in the lead up to the 2016 election, didn't seem to have been particularly effective in persuading lots of people that the changes to negative gearing and the capital gains tax, which Labor had proposed, uh, would actually have the effects on housing prices, the housing sector, building activity or rents that the government and the property industry claimed. And I think that was true then and will be true next year. Indeed, if anything, given that the demand for housing from investors has already begun to soften in the wake of the tighter lending standards that APRA has been demanding since early 2015, the potential for changes to negative gearing arrangements to do further, to have a further impact on demand from investors is less than it was three years ago. In my long-standing view, bearing in mind that I've been advocating changes to negative gearing and to the capital gains tax discount for a lot longer than the Labor Party has been. My view is that Labor's policy will have the effect of dampening demand for established properties from investors, as indeed it's intended to do, for the purpose of reducing the competition that First home buyers in particular have long faced from investors who get their interest costs subsidised through negative gearing by other taxpayers and hence do something to help reverse the slide in home ownership rates that's been going on over the last 25 years. If you look at the published data from the ABS on housing finance, in the early 1990s, when that series began, first home buyers got about 20% of all the lending that banks and other mortgage lenders undertook, while investors got, on average, in the early 1990s, about 15% of all lending. And the remainder went to existing homeowners who were trading up to bigger or more expensive homes. By 
1999, when the capital gains tax regime was changed in ways that turned out to be much to the benefit of property investors, the share of housing lending going to first-time buyers had fallen to about 17%, and the share going to investors had risen to about 29%, as they no longer paid premium interest rates on their loans, as they had done before the early 90s. Then over the next six 16 or so years, the share of housing finance going to first home buyers had by 2014-15 fallen to about 10%, while that going to investors had risen to 49%. And I think this is almost irrefutable evidence of the uh, fact that First home buyers had been squeezed out of the housing market by investors, with the result that Australia's home ownership rate, once the highest in the world, is now in the bottom quintile of advanced economies and in absolute terms was lower at the 2018 census than it had been at any census since 1954. Now, I'm not saying that the growing presence of investors in the property market is the sole reason for the decline in home ownership, but it is an important reason. And it's directly resulted from changes that have, for the most part, worked to the benefit of property investors and to the detriment of would-be first home buyers. Over the last couple of years, as the measures instigated by APRA have dampened the demand from investors, the share of housing lending going to them has fallen to about 39%, while the share going to first home buyers has risen to over 13%. So clearly, investors pulling back from the housing market a bit has opened more doors for would-be first home buyers. And I think Labor's policies will serve to reinforce that in a desirable way. But having said that, it's simply not true that Labor's policies will encourage existing investors to sell their properties because Labor has said existing investors will be grandfathered. If they were to sell their properties after Labor has come into office and introduced this policy, if they win the next election, they would lose their negative gearing privileges if they sold their properties. If anything, they're likely to hold on to them for longer than they would if the coalition were returned. The other aspect of Labor's policy is by retaining negative gearing for investors in new housing, they hope that that will increase the demand for new housing from investors and hence encourage a higher level of building activity and increasing housing supply. That's possible, although I'm less persuaded that that's the only result, but it may well be that this aspect of Labor's policy does encourage some diversion of property investment away from established housing, which I think would be a good thing, towards the construction of new housing, which to the extent that happened would also be a good thing. Now, uh, property would be a less attractive investment in a falling market, and uh, the falling housing markets in Sydney and Melbourne are are probably likely to weaken further with uh, credit tightening because of uh, rules by APRA, but also the Banking Royal Commission will have an effect on that as well, won't it? Well, that's certainly been suggested, and there's some anecdotal evidence that banks have become more diligent in assessing borrowers' expenditures, and in ascertaining whether borrowers already have other financial commitments that they may not have directly or willingly disclosed to the people they're currently 
seeking loans from. Now, this wasn't surfaced by the Royal Commission, it needs to be said. This is something that APRA and ASIC had been starting to lean on the banks to tighten their lending standards for two or three years. And while it now does appear to be the case that the maximum amounts that lenders are willing to lend to borrowers with given incomes and expenditures has come down. Uh, the Reserve Bank published some interesting research in its most recent financial stability review published in mid-October, which says that most borrowers don't borrow anywhere near the maximum amount to which they're notionally able to borrow. Uh, in fact, specifically, the Reserve Bank found that over two-thirds of borrowers borrow less than 70% of the amount that banks are willing under current stricter lending criteria to lend to them, and fewer than 10% of all borrowers borrow more than 90% of what banks are now willing to lend to them. So it's not clear to me that lending standards either have been or will necessarily be tightened in such a way as materially to reduce home buyers' capacity to purchase homes. It may well be that investors find greater difficulty accessing finance than before APRA's crackdown began in 2015. But given that the vast majority of property investors buy established properties and Thus, their demand has the effect of further forcing up the price. I would say that measures designed to reduce that source of demand for established properties should be welcomed rather than condemned. Nonetheless, uh, though, in a falling housing market, you would have to say it's going to be a much tougher political sell for Labor, wouldn't it? Well, that may be unless they're able to persuade voters of something that I believe is actually true, that the relentless rise in Australian residential property prices over the last 25 years hasn't been an unalloyed good thing. Yeah, to be sure, it's made those who already own property better off, and in particular to feel better off, although for people whose only property is the home in which they live, that's more a notional gain than a real one, unless they borrow against it or sell up at some point and move to a cheaper house or a cheaper location. But there's been a lot of downside from this relentless rise in property prices as well, including in particular the almost unceasing rise in the level of household debt to what is not only a record high by Australian standards, but also about the second or third highest among advanced economies around the world. And secondly, as I mentioned before, the decline in the rate of home ownership to, in aggregate, the lowest since the census of 1954, and for people under the age of 35, the lowest since the census of 1947. In other words, there have been losers from rising property prices as well as winners. And when Scott Morrison and the property industry defend negative gearing and property investment more broadly as simply mums and dads trying to get ahead as if that was enough to make it okay. The question people need to ask, I think, is ahead of whom? And the answer, as people are increasingly beginning to recognise, is their own children and their children's peers. 
And that's why an increasing proportion of people in their 20s and 30s are staying in their parents' home longer than previous generations of 20 and 30-year-olds have done because they simply haven't been able to afford to buy homes of their own in competition with these so-called mums and dads seeking to get ahead uh, who benefit from tax concessions that overwhelmingly benefit those in upper income groups rather than so-called middle Australians on modest incomes. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. And Saul Leslie, it's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. That's been a pleasure as always, Liam. So what's happening in the news? Well, global markets continue to be in a tailspin in response to the US preparing to announce new tariffs on all remaining Chinese imports if talks next month between Presidents Donald Trump and Xi Jinping fail to ease the trade war. We're looking here at an early December announcement of a new product list, and that means the effective date, after a 60-day public comment period, might coincide with China's Lunar New Year holiday in early February. Now, this list would apply to imports from China that aren't already covered by previous round of tariffs, which might be as much as $257 billion using last year's import figures. The Trump administration is preparing for such a scenario, anticipating that the planned Trump-Xi meeting makes no progress when they meet at the Group of 20 summit in Buenos Aires in November. In other words, the Trump administration is ready to escalate its trade war with China. And that's despite companies complaining about the rising cost of tariffs and financial markets nervous about the global economic fallout. And Morgan Stanley has warned that Australia's economy carries the greatest risk of a household debt-induced downturn. Australia is ranked as the most vulnerable advanced economy. Morgan Stanley economists Daniel Blake and Chris Reid have warned that weaker house prices and tighter lending could risk a sharper slowdown in consumption. The risk is increased, with households needing to cut debt when house prices are falling, and the household savings rate has shrunk to a razor-thin 1% of disposable income. Australia looks most exposed, combining higher household and external leverage, weak domestic housing conditions and potential further macroprudential and structural tax policy adjustments ahead, Morgan Stanley noted in its global report. And the RBA has missed its inflation target again. Australia's inflation rate remains weak, which means the RBA will keep interest rates on hold. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, consumer price inflation grew by 0.4% in the three months to September and by 1.9% over the year. This quarterly figure was below market expectations for an increase of 0.5%. And after last week's sharp fall, ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index recovered by 2%, regaining a third of last week's decline, and four of the five sub-indices were positive. And approvals for new detached houses across Australia are at their lowest ebb since late 2013. Australian building approvals rose 3.3% in September, following a revised 8.1% decline in August. Total residential approvals are now 14.1% lower than a year ago, with both houses, which are down 7.1%, and apartments, down 21.4%, suffering. And Moody's Investors Service says that mortgage delinquency rates in Australia will increase substantially through 2019, after keeping broadly stable on average over the 12 months to mid-year 2018. 
Softening housing market conditions, particularly in the key states of New South Wales and Victoria, combined with higher household leverage, higher interest rates, and the conversion of interest-only mortgages to principal and interest repayments will push up delinquency rates, according to Moody's. The Moody's report says that mortgage delinquencies have stayed broadly stable on average. And in particular, it says the proportion of Australian residential mortgages that were more than 30 days in arrears were in at 1.58% in May 2018 compared with 1.62% in May 2017. So they're going up. Delinquencies, though, fell moderately in all states except New South Wales and the Australian Capital Territory over the year to May 2018. Moody's points out the delinquency rates were lower in capital cities versus other regions of each state or territory. And the impact of ANZ's turbulent year has hit its bottom line. Profit fell 16% to $5.8 billion, and cash profit was down 5% to $6.5 billion. Statutory profit was flat at $6.4 billion. The Royal Commission's impact on other bank results will become clearer as more results come in. And the Commonwealth Bank is continuing to streamline its business in the wake of the Royal Commission. It will sell its wealth management arm, Colonial First State Global Asset Management, to Japanese asset manager Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group, for $1.3 billion. And this came after the CBA spun off its mortgage broking business, Aussie Home Loans, and the Colonial First State Superannuation and Life Insurance business. And the Royal Commission has eroded trust in banks. A new national survey found that only one in five Australians and only one in four thinks banks are taking responsibility for their mistakes and keeping their promises to customers. According to the inaugural Deloitte Trust Index, Banking 2018, people's views about banks are not at all influenced by their party, persuasion, class or gender. And branch customers are no more trusting than those who do their banking online. The survey reveals that 36% of a 2,000 plus Australian banking customers survey believe their bank has their best interests at heart, whereas only 21% believe banks in general have their customers' best interests at heart. Also, 49% trust their own bank to keep its promises compared with 26% in general. The Ipsos poll, conducted by Deloitte in association with corporate law academic Justin O'Brien's Trust Project, supports a core finding of the Banking Royal Commission. Banks have been too focused managing for the short term. The survey shows banks have a long, hard road ahead of them, repairing customer trust in the wake of the Hain Royal Commission. And university education provider Navitas will meet the consortium stalking the company after suggesting the $5.50 a share cash takeover offer tabled three weeks ago is too low. They need to come back with a better offer and more money. Navitas advised Sydney-based BGH Capital that while its $2 billion conditional indicative offer had not been rejected outright, the Navitas board believed it did not reflect the company's value. The Navitas board has told BGH that its bid does not reflect the value implied by the management's strategy and plan, and nevertheless, in order to determine whether there could be a reasonable proposal, it's decided to grant the BGA consortium full access to due diligence. Navitas has offered to engage with BGH consortium, and this engagement would comprise a detailed management presentation delivered under appropriate non-disclosure agreement, and it will be presented in the week commencing the 5th of November 2018. And a wage theft in silence report prepared by the University of New South Wales and University of Technology Sydney, drawing on data from first large-scale national survey of temporary visa holders with more than 4,300 respondents from 107 countries representing up to 11% of the Australian labour market, 
found that fewer than one in 10 temporary migrant workers had taken action to recover with missing wages, even if they knew they were being underpaid. For every 100 that were underpaid, the report said only three workers went to the Fair Work Ombudsman. Of these, more than half recovered nothing. Key barriers to taking action in the first place included lack of knowledge of how to do so, that's 42%. The effort involved, that covered 35%. Fear of immigration consequences, covering 25%. And fear of job loss, covering 22%. And shares in online retailer Kogan.com plunged massively this week. Investors started selling when the company reported a first quarter lift in active customer numbers, but a decline in gross margin. Now, what's caused this? Well, Kogan has blamed the margin decline on competition from foreign websites not charging GST. A weaker Australian dollar didn't help either. New GST laws on low-value e-commerce import transactions were introduced in July, but Kogan says that initially saw some competitors exit the market, prompting a 33% increase in year-on-year revenue. But now it says overseas competitors are gaming the system. The result? Widespread avoidance of GST by foreign e-commerce sites. And that's hit Kogan's margins. And mid-cap oil and gas producer Beach Energy says it could be debt-free within 12 months. And that's two years ahead of target. That's good news, coming on the back of Beach Energy reporting a strong September quarter and striking a deal for the sale of a stake in a gas production venture. Now, what's also helping are stronger commodity prices. And Managing Director Matt Kay has described it as a remarkable achievement on debt. Net gearing was 33% when Beach completed the $1.585 billion acquisition of Lattice Energy from Origin Energy on the 31st of January. And now it plans to be debt-free within the year. And Rio Tinto Chief Executive Jean-Sebastien Jacques says mining companies have an image problem. He says they need to work harder to change barbecue conversations about the industry. What they have to do, he says is start restoring the level of public trust in the industry. Mining is absolutely vital and this won't change any time soon, he told an industry conference on Tuesday. But I hate to tell you, our industry is one of the least trusted on the planet. In his address delivered to the International Mining and Resources Conference in Melbourne, Mr Jacques said the mining sector was now at the crossroads. He told the conference that protecting the environment is now more important than ever. And all this is happening, he said, when technology is disrupting traditional processes and there's a lack of trust in business. And that, he says, is creating even more questions about what benefits the corporate sector is delivering to the community. The Rio chief said the industry needs to redefine the way it partners with communities, customers, suppliers and governments. And it has to talk less in technical terms about products like iron ore and copper and start using everyday language about showing how mining companies help people live better lives. That also means using social media. And Australians owe more debt than ever in back tax. The Australian Taxation Office's annual report shows that collectible debt rose to almost $24 billion last financial year. Now that's a massive increase because it's up from $20.9 billion in 2016-17. Now most of that is owed by small business. The ATO said almost $10 billion of the $24 billion in debt owed is subject to objection or appeal. It says $1.1 billion is uneconomical to pursue 
another $3.7 billion is irrecoverable at law. And big business is in the ATO's sights too, with the agency collecting more company tax from large corporates that had higher profits and therefore beat its budget revenue target. Net tax collections hit $397 billion in 2017-18. That's up $37.4 billion, or 10.4%, over the previous year. And this was $12.5 billion above the amount budgeted. And that was largely due to company tax collections increasing by $16.1 billion in 2017-18. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a great interview with Steve Hughes. He is the Managing Director of Mood Media, the global leader in customer experience design and implementation. The company created background music industry in Australia more than 80 years ago. Mood Media delivers sensory branding, including retail music, digital signage, scent branding, mobile marketing to more than 500,000 active client locations around the world. And the objective is to engage customers and create for them a curated and unique experience that stimulates positive purchase decisions. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 